Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to another episode of Observations, where I just kind of tell you about my history with comics, both as a fan, as a professional, uh, going back, oh my gosh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's looking more like 46 years now. Uh, I, I have a love affair with comic books. I, I think most of us do. Most of us who really uh, started pulling these books off spinner racks at our local markets. Um, I, I pine longingly for my my markets of the past. And I think now it's up to a twice yearly sojourn I make over to uh, the uh, epic Four Corners that I maybe this is the hundredth time I've brought them up on Broadway and Magnolia, the 7-Eleven, the liquor store, the grocery store, the three corners of the uh, the crosswalk, the intersection that had my uh, all the comics from my youth. And uh, as I've said over and over again, I'll never be that kid who doesn't remember hiding comics in my peachy folder. Uh, peachy folder was a yellow folder with some sports illustrations on it in the 80s or in the side pockets of a notebook. I didn't really want people to know my obsession with comics because they were seen as childish and uh, I didn't want to be judged like so many of us don't want to be judged, right? And But it was always my intention to become somebody who would make comics and, you know, uh, the good Lord knew that, uh, this is why I tell people, if you ever come to see me at a show, at a panel, I tell people, like, I wasn't equipped to be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, studying was completely, if not absolutely alien to me, it was very difficult. But man, did I doodle. Man, could I doodle. And uh, I drew and drew and drew. And thank God for art classes where you could make your own um, curriculum and thank, thank, thankfully, my last two years, I was able to just uh, tell my teacher, who really thought I was not servicing my talent in the right way, I told him I was going to do comic books. He, he, he thought there was no future in comic books. And it was, it was funny. I was flying home from one of our vacations that we were fortunate enough to go on with our family and just kind of have one last hurrah before everybody went their separate ways. Um, on, on one of the flights, as you know, you know, you get the Wi-Fi, right? A uh, wonderful uh, lady, a, a friend of my mom's from my youth, who has two boys who I befriended and, and still am great, uh, just have great affection for them, talk to them uh, through social media often. They're in Illinois. They used to be in Anaheim when I was a kid um, and, and, and grew up on my dad's church. And then they moved away to Illinois. I reconnected with them. She wanted to let me know that uh, my grandfather, she said this to me, um, she's a wonderful lady named Carol said, Hey, did you, do you remember whenever you would doodle in your grandfather saying he's never going to amount to anything unless he stops doodling? This is my new favorite like thing, because trust me, it was infectious in my family that he was not the only one who thought I was throwing my life away. And they didn't understand that comics as they are with so many of us are our salvation. I'm not really sure what's going on in the comic book world. Now there's, I have friends of mine who talk to me about fake nerds and uh, I'm not really sure I know any fake nerds. I certainly don't surround myself with what would qualify as a fake nerd, but it's like, you know, they try and act like they've been into it more than they have been because they want to have a great seat at the table. This is how it was been. It's been broken down to me and, uh, and, and I'm not sure that that even fits. I mean, it may be a method to 
to identify and or to um, minimize people who really are just jumping onto the hobby and maybe saw an episode of What If and really dug it and um, want 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 more. Um, you know, want, want, want more of the Disney plus Marvel stuff, want more Marvel movies, period, want more DC stuff. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it just feels like there's a drawing of the lines and it's been coming for a long time. But to me, it's like, Hey, everybody, everybody in the boat, the boat is, you know, they call it in politics, they call it a big tent, big boat, whatever, both, both work tent boat. I'll take them both. Um, bring it on, get everybody in. We're enjoying it. We're having a fun time. We are loving this experience of comic books. Maybe you love it because of its form as an animated feature, like Into the Spider-Verse, where whereas I came upon Peter Porker years ago, and, and now you're discovering Peter Porker for the very first time because you saw him in Into the Spider-Verse. Um, it's, just a, it's just a fun time right now to be into comics. And, uh, and I am absolutely digging, uh, the, 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 everything that is happening in regards to comic books and, uh, and long story short, I love reflecting and mostly looking at all the different connections that are made over time, what pieces connect to what other pieces and how they all fit together to make one big, um, kind of, uh, uh, pop culture, you know, uh, enchilada that we're all, you know, that we're all participating in because, because whether it's the comics that I grew up with or the comics that you guys grew up with, maybe you got into comics in the nineties or the two thousands. And like I said, maybe it's the, 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 the Disney plus, and maybe it's all this other stuff. It, we're all at the same table and I don't want to, you know, Hey, this guy's not, he doesn't have the credentials. Well, you know what? There are guys who have credentials that go back way more than me. Jim Valentino, my partner in comics in it, we shared a studio we started Image Comics together. He was there when the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Fantastic Four, Avengers, X-Men, he was pulling these comics off the newsstands when they came out. And I love listening to it. And I love that he has wisdom that I can tap into, that I can glean. Okay? So there's always, my dad told me once, you know, as I was getting into sports as a kid, he said, there's always somebody stronger. There's always somebody faster. Just do your best. And in comics, there's always somebody who's been doing it longer, who has more information, who has more knowledge. And I just dig that we can all jam together and I'll share it. So pivoting off that into today's episode is uh, is really interesting to me. So, so uh, look, there is a blog written by a Marvel executive uh, editor. His name is Tom Brevoort. Tom Brevoort has been in Thousands of your comic books over the last maybe 30 years, definitely the last 25. Um, he is a long tenured editor at Marvel Comics. Uh, he is uh, very much respected and um, by by many who he has long, he has long standing relationship adored. Um, the only real regret I've had in the last 20 years was turning down a job that Tom offered me. After I had brought X-Force back in 2004-2005 for Marvel Comics, and I had done a Shatterstar miniseries that kind of came alongside that miniseries, uh, Tom contacted me and asked me if I wanted to do a new Marvel team-up series. And it is the one 
regret I have that I didn't say yes. I, I really would have, I think, thrived uh, mixing and matching. Robert Kirkman had just was just wrapping up an, an extended time that he had on Marvel Team Up. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it, it, it really feels like I missed a great opportunity. What I did instead was I went to DC and I did not have the best time doing these Teen Titans issues, mainly because it was not what I was, um, why I was enticed to cross the street to do the Titans. And, and let me, let me give you a little sidebar. Not only were the Titans some of my favorites as a kid, because I was there, like Jim Valentino was there for when the Fantastic Four and the Avengers arrived. I was there when the reboot of the Titans that George Perez and Marv Wolfman did, which gave the Titans a status they'd never had in comics before. It, it gave them number one comic book for DC status. I mean, it leapfrogged Batman, Superman, the Justice League, all of it. Cyborg, Starfire, Raven, these were exciting characters. I always loved the Titans, but at this point in time, my kids, my two boys specifically, were addicted to Teen Titans Go on Cartoon Network, you know, Teen Titans Go, no, 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 you know, whatever, I'm sorry, just saying, but, dun, 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 dun. oh, so cool, what a cool, what a cool cartoon, we bought all the toys, they were very stylistic, very, very stylistic um, in their depiction, um, somewhere between anime and that that kids network kind of goofy, cool style, I mean, I dug it, we bought all the toys, we had, you know, just just Red X and Robin and Cyborg and Starfire, all the toys. So I'm like, man, I'm going to do this Titans comic and, and my kids will dig it because that's what you do when a parent. You kind of get distracted by the stuff, the stuff that your kids like. And if it lines up with stuff that you actually did like, your motivation for doing it is even greater. So I am uh, going to do the Teen Titans, but it wasn't what it was sold to me as. It was going to be written by Jeff Johns. I met with Jeff Johns. We were coming up with a story. Then Jeff Johns isn't doing it. And, um, and, and that's a whole other story that I'm not prepared to go into yet. Nuts. Um, then, you know, they had, they paired me with Gail Simone. The only time I worked with her, she's obviously very talented, lovely, um, but we couldn't agree on a storyline. And then the entire time I had an editor that was kind of flat out undermining me. And, uh, first time I had ever worked with this editor, it was not the best experience. So when I think of Tom Brevoort, first and foremost, I think of that I was going to be doing, I would have been doing Marvel team up instead, which I should have done. It is my one absolute regret. Cause I talk a lot of the times about the stuff I didn't regret. I don't regret saying no to Dr. Strange, uh, at the time that it was presented to me, but I do regret Marvel team up. Anyway, Tom Brevoort is Fantastic Four, Avengers, I mean, I think he's been editing them for the better part of 25, 26 longer years, long time. He writes a blog. He has a blog. And in his blog, and it is, I got to be honest, the, it's it's the Tom Brevoort, um, dot, dot com, and it's called The Blah Blah Blog. Okay, I honestly, it wins points just for being called The Blah Blah Blog, okay? But he writes, and I'm going to read you some of this, um... He, it's, (laughs) the title of this is Bad Comics I Bought, part two. And I'm just going to tell you right now, these are fighting words. Okay. A post from my decade-old Marvel blog, part of a sequence detailing the early Marvel books that I read that did not make me a fan of the company. He's got a cover to Thor 233. Gil Kane, awesome cover with an army coming out of a portal, flying straight towards Thor, who is in Manhattan, about to throw down with this um, 
kind of alien army on flying horses, okay? Bad comics, I bought part two. So bringing people up to speed from my last blog, in my formative years, I wasn't much of a Marvel fan. For many years, I actively decried the Marvel comics output. And these comics are why. So this, this stuff right here, I had this Thor issue. One of the golden eras for me, for Thor, was Thor number 240. So this is a run of Thor that I really dig, this stuff that he's showing. One of my favorites is uh, Thor number 240, where he's battling Horus, this Egyptian god, and I'll get back to that. But he's showing the cover to Thor 233, so that's seven months from when... I mean, I'm buying these comics. These are comics I'm buying, okay? These are comics coming out in the 70s, which is so, you know, important to me. And we're going to we're gonna really de- dig a little deeper into that as well. Um, and really go, go beyond what this... It's not nostalgia. It's really what it represents. But right here, the 70s weren't the best time for comics overall, Tom says. The number of venues carrying the books was dropping. Okay, not to me. You, I just told you. I had three absolutely fantastic outlets Stater Brothers, 7-Eleven, Liquor Store. That's where I got all these comics, okay? My my, my distribution network as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old comic book pimp was strong. It was strong. Okay, listen. Uh, so he says, the number of venues carrying these books was dropping. The printing was often, at best, lousy, and the page counts were dropping at the low point. A new comic would only contain 17 pages of story. We are going to pin this. This is kind of... So much of everything I've come here to say. Again, respect Tom. No beef. This is his opinion. I'm going to give you mine. At certain points, cost-cutting measures were employed, such as having artists draw a page sideways on the board, then printing it as a double-page spread with oversized lettering compared to the rest of the book and the thick inking that was intended for greater reduction, looking as though it had been done with a stick. Even in the best of times, Thor can be a difficult sell, Tom writes. In 1975, wasn't really the best of times. Attempting to cash in on the barbarian fad in comics started by Conan, Thor often vacillated between trying to look like a sword and sorcery comic and a superhero comic largely to the indifference of both readerships. Here's what I wrote about Thor 233 a couple years ago. Much like Captain America 183, which came out at the same time, Thor 233 was one of my early purchases, which for me, for a long time thereafter, an avowed hater of Marvel. And unlike Cap 183, even today, it's not very good, Tom writes. Thor is a series that, in my opinion, experienced a long creative nadir following the departure of artist plotter Jack Kirby and scripter Stan Lee. It went from being a series packed with startling vistas, compelling concepts, and sweeping epic scope to something more akin to a boring, tepid, pseudo-barbarian comic. Maybe the shift in direction was partly due to the tremendous success of Conan in the early 70s, which we've also covered here in our Barbarians at the Gate podcast, which talks to you about how Marvel came to get Conan the Barbarian and how it changed everything in comics for the last five years. So Tom is spot on here about the sweeping effect that Conan had. But in any case, he writes, the incredible played as the mundane on too regular of an occasion. This issue's no exception. Written with a pretentious tone by scribe Jerry Conway. I don't see it. Don't see it. Uh, you know, eight-year-old Robbie is offended. Um, written by with a pretentious tone by scribe Jerry Conway. Again, eight, eight, eight-year-old Robbie Jerry Conway was writing all my favorite Avengers comics and Spider-Man comics. And here, Thor comics. The story concerned an attempt by Loki to gain his revenge on Thor by invading Earth with a legion of his troops while Odin has mysteriously vanished. 
Jerry tries to make this seem weighty and important. In fact, he tries too hard. And the result is long pages of text or dialogue that are difficult to get through and even more difficult to care about. Gary's written some excellent comics, but Thor always seemed to fit badly for him in his approach. Anyway, he says, uh, this issue, and I'm just going to jump down because it's more summary of the issue. Both this issue and Thor, but both this issue of Thor and yesterday's Captain America were the end product of hit and runs. My father was a heavy smoker. This is Tom writing. And so would regularly be heading over to the 7-Eleven to restock his favorite brands smokes and whenever we'd go there i didn't vagle him into buying me a comic book with these two books however we were in something of a rush so he dashed into the store grabbed the smokes and the book and came out to the car so i wasn't actively involved in the purchase so he grabbed him this thor comic and these that cap comic afterwards i lectured him repeatedly that the fact that i didn't like marvel tom says that they stunk i was so adamant about it i was so adamant about it that it whole that the whole argument came back to bite me in in the behind a few years later when I started reading Marvel books. He would parrot my own comments back to me. He had lived long enough to see me actually working for Marvel. Had he, had he lived long enough to see me actually working for Marvel, it would have been a source of never-ending amusement for him. And then Tom says, more later. <clears throat> really, what I want to... Okay, a couple things. Thor, the barbarian approach. I didn't see it. Gil Kane was doing covers to Conan. Gil Kane was doing covers to Thor. John Buscema was drawing Conan. John Buscema was drawing Thor. I think there's a little bit, I think the fact that both comics coming out simultaneously from Marvel had covers by the same artist and interiors by the same artist is somewhat peppering how Tom sees this. I do. I believe this. More so, we've covered that Kirby in 1975 who launched The Eternals, which now is coming to a theater near you like October, November, what, which month? It's in the fall, right? That is based, and I have an entire mini episodes on Kirby and the Eternals. Look them up in the in the Apple backlog catalog. Here's the deal. Jack was inspired by, as I told you, there was this TV show that every kid my age, it was Saturday nights in my house in Southern California on Channel 5. It was In Search Of. In Search of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. You can Google it. In Search of Sasquatch. In Search of, uh, look, bottom line, that show on History Channel, Ancient Aliens, we were watching, and it was called In Search of, and the host was Spock from Star Trek, Leonard Nimoy, with that very um, demanding, you know, commanding voice. In Search of UFO, UFOs, In Search of the Yeti, uh, in, in Search of Sasquatch, In Search of Ancient Civilizations, In Search of Area 52. This is what, Leonard Nimoy would cover on a regular basis. This had swept the culture. Twilight of the Gods was a was a movie. There was a book. It was all about ancient aliens, the Incas, the Aztecs, how they had all been had visited here before. In fact, Battlestar Galactica, the offshoot of Star Wars that launched with massive ratings in 1978. At the beginning of that, it says, did we come from the Incas, the Aztecs, the Mayans? It's in the credits. Lauren Green is, is saying this. There was an, a huge obsession with these cultures and how advanced they were back then and tying them to some alien civilization or visitation by the alien civilizations. Even I think it's in Predator Aliens, we get that great shot where the, 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 the Mayans are worshiping pre the Predators who are slaughtering them all on their you know Mayan pyramids or their Aztec uh, civilizations. So, so here's the deal. Thor was doing a lot of this. As I said, Thor 240... He's battling, it's part of an extended storyline where he's battling these Egyptian bad guys. Egyptian headdresses 
and garments and costuming is cool looking. And Horus was the Egyptian god that was battling Thor and erecting pyramids in the middle of Manhattan. And I love that stuff. I ate it up. I didn't see it as barbarian. I thought I, I thought Thor was straight up sci-fi. Straight up, you know, people arriving regularly from the skies, aliens, to test both Asgard and Thor while he was in New York. And it just made for all manner of cool stories for me. That's how I remember it. So it's weird that I never thought Thor was in a barbarian state of mind other than Conan held a sword and Thor held a hammer. And they were both drawn by John Buscema on a monthly basis. But again, that whole chariots of the gods, twilight of the gods, all, all that chariots of the gods in search of stuff. That is the stuff that, that I felt was really being mined in, 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 in terms of monthly material for the Thor comic book. Okay. So we, uh, it was fun. It was, um, it was a good comic. I loved it, but more so. And he, and here's my thing. Eric Stevenson and I, you guys know him as the publisher of Image Comics. He is also a partner in Image Comics. He uh, came up, he always says he came in working with Valentino. Man, that was like a blip and you'll miss it. He was my editor slash editor-in-chief for my Extreme Studios for the better part of six years. And I saw Eric every day. We did lunches. We did dinners. We hung out maybe too much. We shared brains and lives and I picked at his and he would listen to my rantings and it was a pretty good time from my perspective. I still talk to Eric. I, I love Eric. He's he's really smart guy and he's proven how um, canny he is and can be uh, with all his wily moves as the publisher of Image Comics. Well, he and I were talking maybe 10 years ago at the Marvel. Okay, I didn't mean to say Marvel. Okay, so, so yeah, that that was a slip, but, but it, it fits. At the marvel that all of these comics we loved were 17-page stories. Right here, Tom Brevoort says, and the page counts were dropping. At the low point, comics only contain 17 pages of story. Even more impressive, as far as I'm concerned. We are looking at these amazing Avengers comics. I have talked about the Korvac saga. I have talked about Count Nefaria, the best Ultron story ever, stories, there was two of them, ever produced written by Jim Shooter, drawn by George Perez, drawn by John Byrne, all these different stories I'm telling you, all 17-page comics. The Nadir, N-A-D-I-R, the creative peak, the mountain that everyone is still trying to reach, the John Byrne, Chris Claremont X-Men, maybe I mentioned the memory episode, that was all done as 17-page comics in the 70s. In this era that I don't know why Tom Brevoort writes that he doesn't like it. I don't know what was going on with him. He was encountering books he didn't like. And it obviously caused him to miss some great stuff. Marvel in, Marvel 2 and 1 was at its peak from 1975 to 1980. Marvel Team Up was at its peak 1975-1980. The Avengers was at its peak 1975-1980. The X-Men 1975-1980. You get Cockrum and Byrne all right there. I mean, I could settle this just right there. But, it, but I feel like I'm like on a like on an infomercial selling you stuff. But wait, there's more. Um, I think I said the Defenders, the Fantastic Four from 1975 to 1980 found a groove between Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and the Son of Doom and the Annihilator and um, and the introduction of Terax, my all-time favorite herald after Silver Surfer because Galactus would have several different heralds. There was, you know, Gabriel, the Airwalker. There was Fire Lord. Well, Marv Wolfman and John Byrne gave you Terax. And, and 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 it was an and an pitted Galactus versus the Sphinx 
for like like the big showdown of my childhood life. The Fantastic Four was rocking. Marvel, 70s, all these problems, the fill-ins, all that stuff we hear about, all manageable. As a kid, addicted to this. I was completely on board, full, full-on invested. Also, the diversity of Marvel in the 70s because I'm going to go beyond nostalgia here. I'm going to go beyond nostalgia. The diversity, okay? The martial arts wing of Marvel opened up with Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi now, they've told me. I've been saying Shang-Chi wrong my whole life. Shang-Chi, Iron Fist, Sons of the Dragon, White Tigers. Again, I cover all of this in depth in my Kung Fu fighting. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting um, episode uh, that I think launched, if I'm not mistaken, launched our second season. Uh, Luke Cage, Power Man, Black Goliath. Obviously, you already had Black Panther. The diversity, the 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 way that Marvel expanded and the new characters that came into being. I mean, you guys, I can win this argument just on the giant size X-Men alone. X-Men, like the original Doom Patrol, they both had guys in wheelchair chairs. They both had kind of um, weird kind of outcast people. You've, you've, you've heard me talk about how the X-Men were temple touchers and arm casters. Not a weapon among them, not very, very dull. Same with Doom Patrol, Elastigirl, you know, uh, 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 Robot Man. Doom Patrol and X-Men both met similar fates. They were dismissed. They weren't adored by the buying public. They launched within the same time frame. It's always been like, who came first? They both were headed by um, dudes in wheelchairs. Very, very strange situation in regards to the echoes that were going on at that time. But most importantly, they both failed. But in 1975, as you know, Wolverine, Sunfire, Colossus, Storm, Banshee, um, who am I leaving out? Um, Wolverine, Sunfire, Colossus, Storm, Banshee, Nightcrawler, okay? Warpath, I'm sorry, Thunderbird. They all came together to make the X-Men and they made Marvel great again. I mean, right there, Wolverine debuts in The Incredible Hulk. You got Adam, the, the, the Jim Starlin, Adam Warlock stuff, which was just off the chain. You had really weird characters like, like Wood God. Um, I mean, I mean, Marvel was cooking. They, they, they threw everything against the wall and, and so much of it seemed to stick. Now here's the deal. I have a giant, uh, I've talked to you about coffee table books before. This is a big one. You're going to hear me handle this. Unfortunately, please don't drop. We don't need that loud thump on the podcast. Clumsy Liefeld. Okay. So, so Roy Thomas wrote a book in a nice silver foil, um, you know, wrap around dust jacket. It's called The Marvel Age of Comics. It's written by Roy Thomas. It covers the years 1961 to 1978. And I'm telling you, man, everything in here is is worth is worth, as they say, a look-see. It is worth checking out. But the 70s, you guys, it just... Now, Marvel's put out these omnibuses omnibuses as well. I've got one right in my reach. Before I get into this, here, I'll go right down here. The 70s. Nope, not going to pull that out. That's going to take too much effort. Look, it'll the, the, the same stuff is covered in here. The 70s brought about so many new, exciting, dynamic characters. From Wolverine, as I said, to Colossus, all the new X-Men. You had the launch of the the... the you know, the entire Conan franchise, which is 6970, it's straddling, straddling that year. Um, I mean, you got the Avengers Defenders War, um, you got Deathlock, 
I mean, you got the very first Marvel DC Comics team up with Superman versus Spider-Man. You got Jim Starlin went crazy cosmic with Adam Warlock, which obviously built off him, which was in, established in the Fantastic Four, you know, for, with, with Jack. So I understand that, that that's a tether there. You got Moon Knight, okay? Oscar Isaac, Moon Knight, child of the 70s, okay? Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi, Iron Fist, Kill Raven, um, The Eternals, Machine Man. These are killer characters. The 70s is when we got Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk. You know, we got so much. We got magazines. The Hulk became a magazine. We got Captain Britain. We got the Dazzler, okay? I dug Dazzler. I will unabashedly embrace my love for the Dazzler. And if you want to make fun of me, that's fine. You got Star Wars, okay? But here's the deal. Let's get, that. that that's characters. But then it gets down to the creators. So one of my favorite comics, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite books that I've ever read and, and, and the most read book of my life is called Easy Riders Raging Bulls and it details in depth the, the and I mentioned it here a couple times before, this, this Roy Thomas book, it's published by Toshin, T-A-S-C-H-E-N, Toshin. It is a handsome, handsome book. Listen, uh, the 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 uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls details a time when the movie studios didn't know what audiences wanted anymore. Movie theaters were in a huge um, pinch. The studios weren't making the people weren't going to theaters. They were enamored with television. Television was new in the late sixties, early seventies, and the formulas that had driven people to the cinemas, like a, a formula: Road Pictures, Bing Crosby, and Bob Hope. You know, Westerns, they had all kind of, um, I mean, there's a lot of those road pictures, you know, and then Abbott and Costello had road pictures. I mean, the road picture formula, the, uh, the, the, the Western, these were, were tired tropes that people had abandoned finally. And studios didn't know what people wanted. And this will detail to you how studios kept turning things down or didn't understand. And this is the rise of Martin Scorsese. It is the rise of Francis Ford Coppola. It is the rise of Steven Spielberg. The rise of Warren Beatty. The rise of William Friedkin. He gave you The Exorcist. It is the rise of, uh, um, did I say George Lucas? So Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, uh, uh, William Friedkin, Warren Beatty. These guys became the auteurs that Hollywood never knew they needed. And they rewrote the history books. Nobody saw Jaws being a breakout summer blockbuster that redefined what what someone could do with a with a you know summer film because that movie had a nightmare production. Did you know that the entire time that Francis Ford Coppola was making The Godfather, that when the dailies went so what whatever he shot on a Monday and a Wednesday and he sent in for the studio to look at, they'd call and they said, the movie's too dark. You gotta, you gotta turn the lights on. We can't see anybody. This is gonna fail miserably. Even though it was based on a award-winning, best-selling book, they doubted Francis Ford Coppola. He was racked with doubt. The studio executives, the people writing the checks to pay for the production, thought that this thing was gonna be a flop. Godfather and Godfather Two are the two most celebrated, most successful, two of the most successful, two of the most celebrated films in the history of cinema. And, and we can hang our hats on the genius of Francis Ford Coppola in that way. He was outstanding, just outstanding. And, uh, and, and, uh, and obviously, George Lucas, no one saw Star Wars coming. When George Lucas shows Star Wars to his friends, 
They make fun of him. That's chronicled in there. They all thought that he had wasted his talent on a children's film, a film that would drastically change. I'm going to go so far as to say Star Wars changed the world. It changed the world. Okay? William Friedkin with The Exorcist. These were not movies that the studio was used to greenlighting and giving you. They had to take giant leaps from Bonnie and Clyde to Shampoo. Warren Beatty was having his moment. He was flexing. He was finding his voice as not just an actor and a pretty boy, but a really talented director. Easy Riders Raging Bulls talks of when the talent took over in the 70s, in this exact same time frame that I am talking that Jim Starlin was doing Warlock, that Frank Miller was just coming on in 1979 on Daredevil, that John Byrne was arriving into our um, comic book psyches, becoming our favorite anything, anywhere, our favorite illustrator in 1976, 77, 78, 79, 80. George Perez drawing the Fantastic Four, Marvel 2-in-1, The Avengers, um, Jim Starlin, as I've already said, writing and drawing, giving you Thanos, giving you Drax the Destroyer, giving you Gamora, giving you that entire Adam Warlock saga that culminates in two amazing annuals, Avengers of Marvel 2 and 1 with, with, with Celebrated. I mean, those, those pages go for mad coin because they are beloved by a generation. And, and, and Chris Claremont finding his voice as the writer of the biggest franchise Marvel would have for 30 years, the X-Men. And along the way, doing Ms. Marvel, doing uh, Shannara the She-Wolf. I mean, this guy was, uh, I mean, New Mutants, all the spinoffs. Walt Simonson was coming into his own. From DC doing Hercules Unchained to eventually coming over doing Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, and later Thor. He got his legs, he, he found his voice in the 70s. Um, you know, Frank Brunner uh, on Doctor Strange on Howard the Duck. Jack Kirby coming back, roaring back. The 70s is the forever people, the new gods. Jimmy Olsen, it's OMAC, it's, it's, it's over at Marvel, it's Machine Man, it's Devil Dinosaur, it's the Eternals, it's his epic patriotic bicentennial return to Captain America. I mean, this was an era where the talent was beginning to flex in the names that we all love and adored and, and, and absolutely inspired every line that, that myself, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Dale Keown, Eric Larson, that we all put down. The, these were the voices of the 70s in the same way of the, of, the, of the William Friedkins and the Francis Ford Coppola's and the Martin Scorsese. Their presence changed the industry because people didn't know how much people wanted what they were giving. And the studio execs literally, literally did not know what fans wanted. And they doubted um, mean Streets and Taxi Driver and 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 Godfather and The Exorcist and uh, and 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 these were the auteurs that changed the shape of our entertainment and in the comics industry, John Byrne, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jim Starlin, Chris Claremont, Howard Chaykin, Frank Brunner, Walt Simonson. These are the guys. Dave Cockrum, Dave freaking Cockrum. These are the guys that changed the. Uh, Frank Miller, these guys are the guys that change comics. And and once they got their foothold, they would dominate for years. It's interesting because I, I really believe right now, I'm not going to get into it now because, again, I'm, I'm just too uneducated and uh, in regards to something like a substack. But it feels like there's a new generation. No, it doesn't feel like there's a new generation. It feels like everybody who's making significant moves in the comics industry right now have had about 10-year careers. They've all been at it about a decade. And they're all trying to find out what their next... Movies, how are they going to establish themselves outside of what they've already been doing 
and and and, and I, I I I believe we are in the beginning of this legacy wars, legacy moves. People are making legacy moves. They're thinking about the end game of their contributions. We always will have Image Comics. Me and my peer group, we will always have it. It was this. Not only did Todd, Jim, and myself break those barriers with sales, but then we created a company that shook the firmament of the comics industry. So we always have that on our side, in our back pocket. Nowadays, you know, I think there are guys who are like, what, what is my move that is deeper than maybe what I am giving you on a monthly basis? What kind of business move? What kind of IP move? You know, what kind of, uh, and again, if you don't know, IP is intellectual property. I stop and I tell it to you because Tom DeFalco brilliantly one time while he was the editor-in-chief at Marvel Comics said, Rob, sometimes you got to dumb this stuff down and, 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 and address the fact that you're, audience doesn't know what you know so therefore you you spoon feed them so that is my diatribe not only the characters of the 70s and i've left out a ton but the creators of the 70s were really responsible for everything if you were loving the comics that you got in the 90s these guys are the reason why these guys are the absolute reason why so so i used tom's blog his opinions are his own he is welcome to have disliked all the same comics that I loved, and we don't. He's, he he loves those Avengers comics that I mentioned, but but I the, the Thor comics at this time I thought were really strong. The seventeen page stories, the brilliance of um of of the Death of Phoenix, the Hellfire Club, all of those amazing X Men comics, Count Nefaria, the three parter, the Ultron stories that we adore, the Korvac stories, these Son of Doom, Fantastic Four stories that I cling to, all seventeen page comics. Eric Stevenson and I would be we'd go and they did it in 17 page comics and John Byrne would do it like Kirby was doing it with a splash page, a double page splash and a splash to end the book. So four of your 17 page comics were splash pages. So that left him 13 more pages to get the story done. We don't get that much today in 30 page comics. Okay. Double, double it up, make it 32, make it 34, truly double it up. And you're not getting the same quality material when 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 frank miller came on daredevil maybe he maybe they had just broken into the 20 page comic um but uh so much of what the work that i adore all of that basically i'll even go so far 74 to 80 that six year period almost seven year period at marvel comics 17 page stories best stories i've ever read and i hold them against the stuff that we all love that that just some of the best monthly comics that I had ever experienced. And they are now considered classics. You're getting... Ultron was in Avengers 2. Thanos was in... Was the engine driving Endgame and Infinity Gauntlet. So these aren't my just whimsical nostalgia. These characters mattered, okay? These characters... Shang-Chi, The Eternals, Black Widow, all peak performance in the 70s. These are the Marvel movies that you are getting right now. Again, I reinforce. So this blog, I used it to go deeper into my absolute adoration, respect, and, uh, and, 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 you know, high exalted status that I give the 70s. Again, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls will give you more insight stories to each of these amazing directors. And, and there's the downfall too. They all got drunk high on their own supply. They got um, they got given away too much power, and when they stumbled, the studios had new formulas to take over. But those guys had an epic run. They broke records. They changed the world. Star Wars, Close Encounters, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. These are movies that changed the world. The Godfather changed the world. These movies 
by auteurs who nobody knew was coming. I'm going to tell you right now, there is a hit show. I won't say which show it is. It is an absolute hit show. It has taken the culture by storm right now, right now in 2020 and 2021. A buddy of mine bought it. I'm not going to reveal the, the show or my buddy. But while we were vacationing, my kids were binging the same show that their parents, my wife, Joy, and I had already seen. And I wondered... Was this show passed on by everybody? It does, it's so unconventional. And it was just like Walking Dead was passed on by 34 networks. And Lord of the Rings was passed on by every studio except for New Line. And Star Wars was passed on by every studio. And it took a favor to a friend to get that movie greenlight. Just like all these things. This show that I'm telling you about that has taken over the culture was indeed passed by every network and my friend went all in and now reaping the benefits. It's a giant hit. And and when I texted him and he texted me back, he goes, remember Rob, this town, nobody knows anything. Nobody can even pretend to know what the next big thing is because nobody saw this coming. So to me, the auteurs of the 70s, just re- re-engaging, using Tom Brevoort's blah, blah, blog. Go to TomBrevoort.com. He writes some great stuff, some fun stuff on this point. We just happen to disagree, perhaps vehemently, as I have and done. And so uh, so the 1970s, it, it, it holds that special place in my heart for the auteurs, the characters. I mean, again, I think with just Wolverine, Storm, Colossus, Luke Cage, in Soon Shang-Chi, you win that battle. Those characters are so, you know, you can say, oh, but Venom and Deadpool, meh. Also, I forgot Punisher. Punisher, boom, 70s for the win, 70s for the win. All right, guys, so that um, that covers that. Again, just really fun times. Never a dull time discussing comic books from the 1970s. So this next segment, this next segment that we're, we're going to discuss uh Deals with, I guess, it's a, I guess it's a comic book feud. I guess it technically fits into comic book feud category, and it is, uh, it is between two giant Brits, uh, uh, Alan Moore, who we've discussed here many, many times on our on our lovely show, and Grant Morrison, another man who's gotten some some fair notice. I, I think I, you know. The British Invasion is uh, is an episode that I uh, discussed both uh, kind of kind of the uh, the 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 dawn of the the British writer, which again it doesn't get any bigger than Alan Moore, and and then it goes off to become Grant Morrison, Garth Ennis, uh, uh, you know Mark Miller. Um, it, it's 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 Warren Ellis. British writers, especially early 2000s, you wanted to get a job in comic books, you had a British pedigree of some of, of some sort because they were they were like it was like the British invasion in music, the two different ones, the 60s and the 80s because in the 80s, you know, it was it was Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Culture Club, I mean, uh, j- just, you know, um um madness, uh, I mean, uh uh general public i mean it there was so much i mean i'm blanking but obviously the beatles the rolling stone two different musical british invasions defined some huge periods of music history and uh and really affected so much of everything that we love as pop music but in comic books it never got bigger than this uh resurgence in the 2000s because alan was kind of kind of kind of ruling the roost by himself uh, in the Swamp Thing, Watchmen 1985 era, but he definitely opened the door for a bunch of guys to come through. 
but let me introduce to you a concept called super folks. Have you heard of it? Is this the first time you're hearing of it? Super folks. Well, this was not written by a Brit. Super folks was written by uh, 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 an author that uh, is no longer with us, sadly. But this this uh, his work, and it's Mayer, not Meyer. And if I said it Meyer, it, it's M A Y E R. Robert Mayer wrote Super Folks. Super Folks came out in 1977. Now, Super Folks is prose. It is a novel that is really um, got a ton of great concepts and it has a ton of great uh, ideas. It's a parody. It's a spoof of everything that had been going on in the comic book world at that time. It, it takes no prisoners. Um, it establishes uh, its characters. It talks about characters that were killed off, um, that, that we know, Lone Ranger, Superman... Uh, due to an asteroid hitting Earth, but it, it really deals with a character named David Brinkley, who those among us who are alive at the time, David Brinkley was the name of one of the biggest newscasters in the business. Newscaster, okay? And uh, there, there's a and, and there's a reference to Walter Cronkite in this thing. The planet Kronk is where the Superman of the story, um, you know, David Brinkley hails from. And he, and instead of kryptonite, he is weakened by a Cronkite, which is Walter Cronkite, another giant newscaster of this time. So um, people only call him David Brinkley. Occasionally, uh, different forces and agencies refer to him as Indigo. Sometimes they call him the Ubermensch. But it is about what if it takes comic book conventions and cliches and and applies them to the real world. Like, what if these people walked among us? It was the first time it was like a, a realistic approach, but with a kind of a wink and a nod and a satire. There's Captain Mantra is, a, is an overt Captain Marvel slash Shazam echo. Um, there is a uh, an elastic man who is obviously a plastic man. There's a guy named ca- called the De- Demoniac, who is a mashup of both Captain Marvel Jr. as well as Black Adam. And then there is a takeoff on, and wait for it, when I was a kid, we used to argue, how do you say Mr. Mixelplix or is it Mr. Mixpidilix? I've heard both. It's the little weirdo gesture that taunts um, taunts Superman. And if you make him say his name, you know, he'll go away. And he, he avoids saying his name all the time. Well, there is a takeoff of him, which it's P-X-Y-Z-S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. If, if I look at it, it says... Pig zigzaggy, but it's a takeoff on Mr. Mixpidilix or Mr. Mixelplix, whichever you, I, I haven't watched a cartoon that his name was said in, so I don't have the proper pronunciation. You will, you guys will no doubt take to social media and correct me on if I am doing it right. This book went on to, um, to, to be, uh, a book that people such as Kurt Busiek, uh, who wrote Astro City, um, people who, uh, Grant Morrison himself, Alan Moore. So, so here's the feud part of it. Um, you know, this book that examines that this, this dilemma, it has a little bit of a social satire, political narrative, um, throughout it's, it's a satire, super folks, super folks by Robert Meyer, 1977 again. And, and, and it's, 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 uh, 
It's very over the top. It's wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nod, nod. And it's the first of its kind. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it really, I, I've read a large chunk of it. I've never completed it um, from beginning to end. But I'm, I see the comparisons. I see when, and here's where your food feud comes in. So 1977, let's be honest, that's, that's you know, eight years prior to Watchmen. Eight, really earlier than any acclaimed work by Alan Moore. Well, in 1990, Grant Morrison wrote a column for a magazine called Speakeasy. And in it, he uh, alleged, Grant Morrison alleged, that Alan Moore has appropriated all of his ideas from Superfolks. Like, like basically says that Alan Moore uh, took the ideas, which again, there's Captain Mantra, who's Captain Marvel, and there's the demoniac who is Captain Marvel Jr. and Black Adam, kind of a borrowing of the two, really goes heavy into this kind of echo of the Marvel, the, the, the Marvel family, the Shazam family. You know, so many of you that uh, I'm, I'm, if you're my age, you're thinking of the Saturday morning Shazam cartoon. If, if you're a kid of today, you're thinking the Zach Levi Shazam movie. Okay. Um, he, he really leans in heavily on that concept. And, and along with his David Brinkley Superman echo, uh, and again in the in, in the book Lone Ranger died, <laughs> um, Wonder Woman is still alive. Superman died in this m- meteor asteroid hit, and uh, and so uh, Super Folks is uh, again just a novel, a thick, well you know very well thought through, very smart. Obviously, very acclaimed Kurt Busiek, Grant Morrison. Alan Moore will acknowledge it, but not in the same way that Grant Morrison does in his 1990 article in Speakeasy, where he says basically that Alan Moore ripped all these concepts off from Meyer. He says that the three works that Alan Moore cites, uh, Marvel Man, Watchmen, and Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, a seminal two-part Alan Moore written Superman story that kind of ended the Bronze Age existence of Superman prior to John Byrne relaunching him in the new Bronze Age. Okay, Alan Moore wrote this brilliant two-parter called "Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow." It's it's a uh, it's a really brilliant, brilliant, epic uh, Superman yarn. I mean, Alan always has had a special uh, thing for for Superman. Um, it says uh, it says. Grant Morrison says that Miracle Man, which would, you know, was Marvel Man overseas when it was coming out, uh, has this, has had, um, many similarities with Robert Meyer's novel. And, uh, and then, um, you know, Super Folks has a, a quote that Moore used for his first Marvel Man story. Behold, I teach you the Superman. He is the lightning. He is the madness. Um, demoniac is a warped version of Captain Marvel Jr. The villain in Moore's Miracle Man is a kid Marvel Man, kid Miracle Man um, mashup, and he is a uh, he becomes a villain. Um, kid Miracle Man is defeated when he says Miracle Man by accident. In this is true. This is how you know Alan Moore wrapped up this amazing storyline. The demoniac is defeated when he says Captain Mantra by accident. So again, Robert Meyer is beating Alan to several of these different punches well in advance by eight years in terms of publication. Grant Morrison cites that in Alan Moore's Watchmen, 
that Alan Moore is discussing a conspiracy against superhumans um, that, that utilized a complex web of subsidiaries. In Superfolks, the hero is similarly targeted by a corporate conspiracy. In Whatever Happened on the Man of Tomorrow with Mix Pitalix, the uh, mischievous little trickster from the fifth dimension who had been previously only a slight nuance became a vicious murderer, murderous threat in Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. In Super Folks, Robert Myers, 1977 Super Folks, Mixed Pitalix analog, the Mixed Pitalix analog or Mixlepix. <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this into a mic. I, 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 apologies. This guy is Pig Zigzigzi, an elf from the fifth dimension becomes a calculating mastermind behind the assassination of various politicians and costume heroes. Uh, so, so, so Grant Morrison is citing that there are way too many similarities in super folks to just turn a blind eye and act as if Alan Moore did not have some plagiarisms. It is a peculiar, it is peculiar, um, that this work was a pastiche of comic book heroes, um, in, in, in that it ended up being so influential on very highly regarding, regarded comic books that were published after it. It's, 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 you know, literally each one of these works that Morrison is saying that Moore was influenced by Meyer did go on to great acclaim. Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow is one of those when fans get together, especially when you were, it came out when I was 18. Oh, whatever happened to the man. Oh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Oh my gosh, it was so good. Oh my gosh. So, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, Watchmen. Oh my gosh, so good. You know, um, Miracle Man, my favorite Alan Moore work. Okay. So uh, this is, it's, it's, it's odd. Alan goes on to win a claim for this stuff <clears throat> that look, they, they have similarities. They're there. Okay. But plagiarism is too strong of a word. Influence, influence. But Grant is definitely that the whole line of this and why I'm sharing it with you is that Grant threw stink. He threw stink on Alan. He threw hard stink saying Alan took all this from super folks. He wrote it. He, he, Wrote his name to it. Grant was a working, successful between Doom Patrol and Animal Man. He had really kicked down the door. Zenith. He had found his voice in comics. He was celebrated. Not quite Alan Moore status. And the Invisibles, all this other stuff was to come yet. But at this time, he is, uh, you know, he is uh, serving up that, well, Alan is only, you know, doing this because of this. So, um... You know, the, uh, the, the, that's the accusation. Grant, a successful writer, goes into this magazine and throws this, this shade at, at Alan. So, you know, I think you can see why Alan Moore isn't really happy with Grant Morrison. And so, so I'm going to entertain you right now by actually telling you like how they reacted to each other's. Okay. Um, I mean, th this is really funny. Uh, <clears throat> in 2011, in a Q&A from fans, uh, Alan Moore touches on this. So, so now he's been publicly called out in 1990 by another rival British comic book writer who says, he took everything from super folks. Miracle Man's only good because of super folks. Watchmen's from super folks. Whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, all, he, he took all this from Robert Mayer's you know, novel. You can get it on Amazon, super folks. You can, you can buy it right now. Uh, I believe Robert Meyer passed away 20, it's, it's 2017, 2019. I'll, I'll look it up, but he, he's, 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 uh, he is a 
relatively recent passing. He he was with us a long time. He is the author of Super Folks. Um, at this fan event, 2011, a question, Talamore. Guy says, you are somewhat, surprisingly, not the only acclaimed comics writer from the UK to also be a vocal magician. I am talking about Grant Morrison here. Uh, I've told you before, Alan would tell me when he would disappear and not contact anybody from Awesome Extreme for weeks on end, <clears throat> he would say, let me, let me try my best, Alan Moore. <clears throat> and I, I, was in the, I, I, I was in the magic room. I was, I was in the magic room for the last few weeks, but it didn't seem like weeks to me. I was visiting with Gandhi and Jesus. And I'm like, Jesus Christ? Yes, Jesus. So, you know, Alan, I was in the magic room. Um, this guy's like, you know, says, this fan says, obviously I'm talking about Grant Morrison here, who has never been shy about his views on you or your work. Can we possibly draw out from you your views on him and his work? This fan asked, Alan in 20 out. 2011, Alan says, <clears throat> here's Alan's response. Well, let me see. The reason I... <clears throat> I got to do this Alan more, guys. Sorry, I got to clear my throat. The reason I haven't spoken about Grant Morrison generally is because I'm not very interested in him. And I don't really want to get involved with a writer of his caliber in some sort of squabble. But for the record, since you asked... The first time I met him, he was an aspiring comics writer from Glasgow. I was up there doing a signing or something. They asked if I could perhaps, if they could invite a local comics writer who is an admirer of mine along for dinner. I said yes. This was, I think, the only time that I met him to speak of. All right, let's, let's examine this answer. First of all, let's, let's be honest. British people have the best comebacks they have the slyest sense of humor the digs the wanker again watch ted lasso for any you know or or watch one of those british rom-coms whether it's four weddings and a funeral you know notting hill uh these these and any you know come on um that there was that sitcom with the two ladies that my wife and i watched all through the 90s oh my gosh absolutely fabulous was it abfab was that it okay british people they can slice and dice you with their tongue they're they they're better at it than us, I think. I mean, why do you think the Golden Globes have Ricky Gervais all the time? Nobody slices and dices better than him, and he, they do it in that brilliant accent. The more cockney, the better, I say. So, but here, Alan says, I don't really want to get involved with a writer of his caliber. Okay, is that exalting him or diminishing him? Because it's open to interpretation of his, like he's beneath me? I don't think he's saying he's, he's above him. I think he's saying, I, I don't want to get involved in a writer of of him, his caliber. Like, it's a diss, okay? And then, uh, he was a cute little writer from a small town. I was doing a signing, and they asked if he could come to dinner with us. It's my only time I met him. So, again, Alan is establishing dominion in this answer. Um, again, 2011, I mean, we're talking 21 years after Grant says, all your best work was taken from a book that that, that an American guy wrote. Robert Mayer was a reporter, by the way. Um, I think that's why there's the fascination with the the press names, the authority, the, the, the broadcasters in the book. Um, <clears throat> Alan continues and says, he said how much he admired my work, how it had inspired him to want to be a 
the comic book writer, and I wished him best of luck. I told him I'd look for his work. When I saw that work in 2000 AD, I thought, well, this seems as if it's a bit of a cross between Captain Britain and Marvel Man. That's probably something he'll grow out of. <laughs> another, <laughs> another, another blow. Okay. <laughs> um, it was on that basis I recommended him to Karen Berger when she was starting. And then it says indecipherable. <laughs> this guy who's who's transcribing this says indecipherable. Okay, so Alan Moore and Grant Morrison are having it out. And uh, then he says that there was a... Grant started a strange campaign campaign against him, expressing his views. And, uh, <clears throat> and then he later explained... This is Alan talking. He later explained this as saying that when he started writing, he felt he wasn't famous enough and one of the ways to become famous or to say nasty things about me, which I suppose is a tactic, although not one, of course, I'm likely to appreciate. you got to love Alan here, okay? So at that point, I decided, this is Alan again. I'm just going to talk, not do Alan. This is Alan talking. So at that point, I decided, after I'd seen a couple of things of him, and they seemed incredible. Oh, you know what? I'm this. I am absolutely going to say this in his voice. <clears throat> so at that point, I decided, after I'd been a couple of... I'd seen a couple of his things, and they seemed incredibly derivative. <laughs> incredibly derivative. I just stopped bothering with him or his work. And that's largely sort of proven successful, but there still seems to be this kind of indecipherable, it says indecipherable, that I know of. So, Alan completely, ah. Eh, I decided to give this kid a chance. Everything seemed incredibly derivative and it was a good thing I stopped looking at his work, okay? So, and then Alan wraps up by saying, and those are pretty much my thoughts on Grant Morrison and hopefully I've explained that and I don't have to mention his name again. Hopefully I've explained that and I don't have to mention his name again, okay? Well, of course, um, Grant Morrison gets word of this, okay, and uh, and in his interview he says, "Grant talks like this, and I can't really do it." Damn, I don't know like that. Okay, I'm not going to do it because if you talk to Grant Morrison and hang on a high, it's it's hard to understand him. I've stood while he speaks to me, and I do not know what he's saying to me. It's fast. It's very. British, I don't know. I can't. Ex I, I, I've other people I've spoken to have the same, you know. And he's probably doing some stupid Valley Girl impersonation of me, dumb Southern California. So, um, Rob Life, uh, like, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm not. It's not personal. I just. I can't really do Grant Morrison, um, because it's hard to understand. But I will read in a regular voice what Grant is saying. Doing my own approximation of the in-style to get gigs on Marvel UK books was, I thought, a demonstration of my range, versatility, and adaptability to trends, not the declaration of some singular influence, some singular influence that has subsequently been distorted over four decades, mostly by Alan Moore. It's hard not to be insulted by Alan Moore's comments that he recommended me to Karen Berger, Grant Morrison said. Because again, Alan's like, oh, shit. His name was Karen Berger. I don't believe I ever tried. I don't believe I ever got. No, I can't do it. I don't believe I ever tried to get famous by insulting Alan Moore. It doesn't seem like the most likely route to be a celebrity. Why is he making up stories about me? Grant says. 
As I've said, it's far easier to make the argument that Allen continues to indulge in clear, persistent, and often successful attempts to injure my reputation for reasons of his own. So Grant's pissed, okay? We can take from this, Grant's not happy. So um, in 2018, Morrison made headlines, okay? Uh, With a different narrative, stating his opinion of Watchmen was what started the entire thing. And, uh, and in this wired, uh, it's in, in this, in this interview, um, uh, I'm reading it on Gizmodo, but Grant details about all of the ways that he doesn't like Alan. And, uh, (laughs) this is like, this is a great feud. This is legit, right? I mean, this is legit. Um, this is a feud, uh, he said, I'm the first person to say that Watchmen wasn't very good. This is Grant Morrison, okay? 2018 interview, I am the first person to say Watchmen wasn't very good. In fact, the only per- I am the only person to ever say that. And that made him, Alan, so angry. So then, and that made Alan so angry, so then I would get worse. So he liked that he heard that Alan dissed him. I said that Watchmen was the 300-page equivalent of a sixth-form poem. I think it genuinely upset him. Alan Moore has not spoken to me after that. Once again, Grant Morrison, it's on a Gizmodo interview that I read, said, I was the first person to say Watchmen wasn't very good. In fact, the only person to ever say it. And that made me, that made Alan so angry. And then I would get worse. I said that Watchmen was the 300-page equivalent of a sixth-form poem. I think it genuinely upset him. Alan Moore didn't speak to me after that. So, um, it, uh, it, it, it's pretty, pretty obvious that these guys are not, um, exactly fans of each other's work. And, uh, I, I think we've established, I mean, Grant has gone out to, gone out of his way to, um, lay at the feet that, uh, (laughs) you know, basically call what everyone regards as this genius work, um, that, that, that it's, uh, you know, that it's not very good. I'm going to, I'm going to read you some more Grant Morrison, um, that, that is in full bleed, uh, which is a Kickstarter that he did heavy rotation, volume three, full bleed, volume three. Grant goes on to say, I have read Watchmen many times. The reasons I hated it when I was 25 are still there. But now I kind of like it because I'm older and I like the structure and I'm quite in awe of the absoluteness of it. But for all the same reasons, I still hate it. The fact that none of the characters are allowed to be smarter than the author, that drives me nuts. This is Grant Morrison. I'm reading word for word this interview in Gizmodo. The world's smartest man is an idiot. He makes a plan all his life that is undone by the end of the book in an instant. The psychiatrist sits with Rorschach for five minutes and Rorschach tells a super banal story of how he became a vigilante and the psychiatrist cracks. If you're a criminal psychiatrist who deals with men in prison, you've heard a million of these stories. It was all to make a specific point about how the real world isn't like superhero comics. In my school, I was taught in this Scottish Presbyterian way, Scottish, that the structure is hidden. You don't see the writer's mechanics. Watchmen, you can't turn the page without him saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Okay, we get it, man. You got thrown out of school at 16 for dealing acid. You're so clever. Okay, I said British earlier. Again, Grant Morrison. It's Scottish. Oh, a hand high and a Scottish. All right. Um, I took pot shots at him in the media. I'm continuing. This is Grant Morrison. I took pot shots at him in the media. I was the first person to say Watchmen wasn't very good. Here's that quote. 
In fact, the only person to ever say that, and that made him so angry so that I would get worse. I said that Watchmen was the 300-page equivalent of a six-form poem. That kind of trash talk I'd brought from being in the band, because that's what you do when you're in a band. I'd brought all that across with me to comics, and it didn't go down very well. I think it genuinely upset him. Alan Moore didn't speak to me after that and would take his own little pot shots. He called Arkham Asylum a gilded turd. A gi- <clears throat> I can do, Alan. Arkham Asylum is a gilded turd. Um, we need... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We got to get this movie. Um, So uh, since then, back to Grant, I've had nothing to do with him and he has nothing to do with me. A lot of comic fans like to think there's some feud, but a feud would actually need to involve people's interest. I read his stuff. He reads my stuff. He pretends he doesn't, but I know he does. It was the archetypal archetypal struggle and it wasn't fair because I love his work. Well, there's a lot of it I don't like, but of course he's great. We grew up in a very similar time, even though I'm a little bit younger. It's the same influences from the 60s and 70s, TV and the books we read, sci-fi, all that stuff, same comics. And the fact that we got into magic, it's two people who are so so similar, but so utterly different that there has to be a feud. And that is the sum total of the Grant Morrison versus Alan Moore. I don't think this is ever going to end well. Uh, I do like Gilded Turd. I'm going to start calling things Gilded Turds. But there you have it. Super Folks, written by Robert Meyer, is Kurt Busiek cites it as an influence on his work. Grant Morrison... Alan Moore said he read it, but he took nothing from it. And Grant Morrison has pointed out all of the similarities. This is not a new um, controversy, but perhaps you're reading about it for the first time because you're listening to my podcast. And I love that. I love it so much. So the Brit, uh, look, this is absolutely a comic book feud. Moore versus Morrison. We're going to call this part one. We're going to come back and revisit it and go deeper into this as, 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 uh, as time goes by. But these cats do not care for one another and they argue better than american guys they man they argue better than than me and anybody else i've ever had an argument with that that, this is great stuff grant versus allen is golden grant actually is going to be back in a future podcast because grant wrote a book called super gods and we're going to revisit that because he has a lot to say about a lot of stuff but today we just dipped our little toe into super folks robert meyer 1977 its influence on so much specifically Watchmen, specifically uh, uh, um, what happened to the Man of Tomorrow and Miracle Mind. Now, in in all honesty, I remember Amazing Heroes was so shook by this back in 1990, 1991. They were a uh, one of the leading, prior to Wizard taking over, they were the leading kind of fan comic book magazine. They did, a, they did an entire editorial on we've examined the, the differences between super folks and Watchmen, and and while there are similarities, we believe that they both stand on their own. They they came out with like, you know, Watchmen is its own thing. Watchmen is its own thing. It's a murder mystery, okay? It's its own thing. But again, Grant whipped up his skunk tail and sprayed Alan right back here in this column, in Speakeasy, in 1990, and that kicked off all this madness. You guys are the very best audience. I had the best time. Wow, this was a fun one today. A ton of stuff covered. The 70s, the 70s auteurs, the British sniping of two uh, wonderkind, you know, writers, and uh, a gilded turd was discovered in our discussion today. You guys, I am all over social media, on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld, on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. Both have blue checks. They, you can tell that's really me. You're not talking to a gilded turd, okay? Now, here's the deal. I read your interviews. There's... A, what am I doing? I read your reviews. Thank you so much for le- leading, leaving reviews for my show. And at the end of each show, I read the reviews that you guys have left for me. And I am always, 
always so very appreciative of um of your guys very very kind reviews that you um that that you have left for me and uh so so in keeping with that today I am going to share with you a fun review um that that uh that that uh was was left by Jess Schober Jess Schober great podcast about comic books love listening to these and getting the gems of comic book history influence and style Rob tells it from the heart with passion and provides great examples from his 30 years 30 plus years in the comics industry I have been a fan for decades and will keep listening to these as they come keep them coming Rob thank you Jess J-E-S-C-H-O-B-R Jess Schober um so uh and then here is I I'm I just read the names this is called The Real Untold Story of Comics by Big Black Steve. I, I just, I read the names. Big Black Steve is who signed this. I found this podcast from a recommendation from the Geek History Lesson podcast. This podcast is like the money ball meets the last dance of the comic book industry. I highly recommend Rob's observations. Thank you, Rob, for motivating me to draw. Thank you, Big Black Steve. And thank you, Jess Schobert. You guys keep those reviews coming. The ratings, the rankings, the subscriptions, recommendations. We we thrive on the fact that you guys are, are building um, building us up with your word of mouth. Thank you so much. Um, that is why I get up in my cave and I do this show. And I love sharing the history and the stories and the feuds and my absolute love and passion of comics. You guys, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I'm all over social media, all over Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I love talking to you guys. Hang out. Uh, let, 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 let's chat. Um, I'm pretty good at getting back to you guys, so always reach out if you, if you want. I absolutely love um, our lively you know, debates and discourse. So, you guys, you know what time it is. It is this time where you are going to pledge to me that you're going to take care of yourself, because you are. You're going to take care of yourself, and you're going to stay safe because we most certainly are going to talk again real soon.